Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can follow us on Twitter, at PolicyCast, or find us on your channel of choice by visiting hkspolicycast.org. This November 9th will mark the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the reverberations of its demolition are still affecting us to this day. We're joined this week by Professor Mary Elise Serrati, a visiting professor at the Center for European Studies here at Harvard, who's just written a, book, a new book, Collapse, the Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall. Mary, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you for inviting me. So the accidental opening of the Berlin Wall, uh, it's a story I don't think many have heard. Um, take us back to the weeks leading up to the, to the borders opening up. What exactly was happening? Well, the amazing aspect of the weeks leading up to the border opening is just how similar they were to the weeks and months and years and decades of the Cold War that preceded them. The East German regime was a hardline regime. It was opposed to the reforms underway under the leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union. In some ways, it's loosely similar to you know North Korea today, which is uh, uh, clinging to its hardline ways, despite all the changes in its much more powerful neighbor, China. So the East German regime was trying to maintain control over the movement of its people. So uh, the Berlin Wall was still standing. Its uh, armed border forces were still using violence to prevent people from crossing it. Uh, it turns out the last person shot trying to escape over the Berlin Wall was shot in February 1989. And the last person who died uh, died in March 1989. He tried to float over in a balloon. Those are the last people who died, but then there were mm -hmm. still shootings after that. So what's amazing is that there is so much continuity from the Cold War, and it makes the opening of the wall on November 9th all the more dramatic because it's such a dramatic rupture with the past. Mm -hmm. So what was the, the difference maker then if everything seemed to be about the same as, as it had been for the 30 years before it? Well, in the book, I use what uh, political scientists might call a powder keg model. I don't say this explicitly in the book, uh, but um, I have set the book up as an exploration of the short-term causes of the opening of the wall. And let me explain what I mean by that. The uh, powder keg model postulates that you need both a powder keg and a spark to get a dramatic explosion, right? Mm -hmm. Usually, scholars will study the powder keg. But I read an article about the sparks or the catalyst. The article was by a scholar named Richard Ned Lebeau. And it was extremely interesting. And Professor Lebeau argued that catalysts are not like buses. They're not all like. They don't come along every 12 minutes. <laughs> you can't just assume a catalyst will conveniently appear. You need mm -hmm. to actually understand the catalyst as well. And the nature of the catalyst and the nature of its interaction with the powder keg helps give shape to the explosion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because we historians have studied a lot about the Cold War context, the superpower contest between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the uh, revolutions on the ground. But we haven't understood the catalysts that turn the potential for the opening into the wall into the actual opening. Mm. And so what happens in 1989 is the catalysts finally come along. So the reforms in the Soviet Union, even though the East German regime is trying to deny them, have become widely known, have huge appeal to the people of East Germany. 
it raises their hopes, it raises their expectations. Another great political theorist, Tocqueville, famously pointed out that it's actually times of political reform that are most dangerous for dictators mm -hmm. because once the people realize that something, some kind of grievance they had thought simply had to be endured because it was inevitable or eternal, once they realize that in fact it, it could end, it suddenly becomes intolerable. Right. People demand an immediate end of those grievances. Mm -hmm. So you have this, um, you have these conditions under Gorbachev where you have this potential for dramatic change, but it takes these crazy, unexpected events of autumn 1989 to turn the to turn this potential into the actual opening of the wall. So, you posit that this was an accident. What was the actual accident that that led to it happening? Well, by accident, I mean unintentional. Mm -hmm. The East German regime did not intend to open the wall, and once it opened anyway began military preparations to reseal it and actually even regain control at various points. Mm -hmm. The regime did not intend to give up its most valuable asset, which was control over the movement of its people. Mm. And yet the wall opens. Mm -hmm. So the obvious question is, why? Right. <laughs> and the answer lies in a series of events triggering in perfect if accidental sequence. Some of these events would just be details, would be unimportant, but for the fact that they end up in the causal chain. Mm -hmm. Briefly, there are massive protests in East Germany, in part inspired by Gorbachev. So there's clearly upheaval in the streets. And the East German regime decides unwisely to basically offer some sop to the crowds. Mm -hmm. So the regime decides to make modest and essentially insignificant changes to the existing travel regulations. But the announcement of these insignificant changes is so badly botched that they sound real. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tell the story of how this happens mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, and then, <laughs> then because the announcement happens before a press conference, a press conference that includes international journalists such as Tom Brokaw, mm -hmm. journalists immediately run out of the press conference and start reporting the wall is open, even when it's not. Uh -huh. And so these radio reports go out, these television reports go out saying the wall is open. And it is baffling to the border guards. <laughs> I interviewed the border guard at the key border crossing about that night, and he, he could not believe he could not believe it. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Mm -hmm. And he kept trying to call his superiors to get orders. And when he could get through, they told him it was business as usual. Nothing had changed. Right. And yet, first tens, and then hundreds, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands of people are showing up saying the wall is open. Right. And so this massive crowd assembles, and meanwhile, it's becoming a kind of self-generating cycle, because sure. the reporters show up and take pictures of the crowds and say, mm -hmm. oh, well, the mall must be open, because here are all these crowds. Mm -hmm. And the uh, border guards are left to their own devices, cannot get instructions, and have to decide what to do. And this is where the story could have turned out very differently if the border guards had decided to use force. The border crossing where the wall first opens, the place where the wall first opens is a border crossing called Bornholmer Street. Mm -hmm. And the uh, senior Stasi officer on duty there, that's the senior secret police officer on duty there, was basically the man in charge. Mm -hmm. And his name uh, was Harold Yeager. And Harold Yeager, after 
he, as he told me in an interview, trying 30 times to get orders, finally decided, forget it. I'm getting no useful orders. This mob of people is assembling. I'm starting to get worried about my safety and the safety of my men. And when I interviewed him, he said, I finally, after hours and hours and hours of this, just around 1130, I finally turned to my men and said, either we're going to shoot all these people or we're going to open up. And that's, you know, one of those hinge moments, right? Those Mm -hmm. moments on which history turns because you wonder what had happened if they had decided to use violence. But fortunately, he and his men decided to open up. And so Harold Yeager, in a very practical sense, is the man who opens the Berlin Wall. Wow. Wow. Not not what he expected to be when he woke up that morning. (laughs) No, not at all. This is a man who had worked for 25 years at that location had only one mild demerit on his Stasi file. I pulled it, I looked at it, uh-huh. had received plenty of awards and commendations for his work. This mm-hmm. is one of the most loyal servants of the regime. Mm-hmm. And yet, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and right. he's forced to make a very far-reaching decision right. under immense pressure. Right. And because he makes the decision he makes, we have the amazing images of the peaceful opening of the wall. It's kind of incredible when you think about the popular imagination of the wall falling as a, you know, an earth shattering event that changes geopolitics and, you know, everything is different. Right. Um, We think about, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan saying, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall and all these big forces pushing towards it. But is the popular conception uh, wrong necessarily about those about those forces, or is it just looking at it in the wrong way? Well, I'd go back to that powder keg model that I described at the mm-hmm. beginning. The longer-term Cold War contest, that is what I'm calling the powder keg. And so sure. the longer-term contest between the U and the Soviet Union is certainly crucial. It provides the context. First, first it provides the context in which the wall is built, mm-hmm. but then it provides the context in which the wall can open. So that context is there, but in order for the the possibility to become the actual opening, you need to understand the actions of the locals. Right. And I think you're right. I think that, particularly in the United States, people don't know this story. Uh, they know the story of President Reagan's speech in right. June 12, 1987, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. But then they're a little fuzzy on how the wall actually opens and why it doesn't actually open until right. more than two years later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's sort of this this curious uh, this curious gap. And I, when I would give talks about this, I realized that there was a need for this book because so many people didn't know what came in between. Right. Read the Reagan speech and the night the wall opened, mm-hmm. and what came in between was the actions of a lot of locals, a lot of. Uh, East Germans in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them were loyalists, like Harold Yeager, acting in ways they never expected. Others were dissidents who were trying very hard to make the wall open. Right. So there was both uh, unintentional action and and intentional action, if that makes sense. Right. And uh, those came together in this amazing interplay of factors to produce the opening of the wall. And so I decided to put this story together for the 25th anniversary of the opening of the wall, which is, of course, November 9th, 2014. Right. So the time between the November 9th date and uh, and the actual reunification of Germany that that took a little a little while. What was that uh, that conversation like? That that negotiation about um, you know bringing Germany back together. The yeah the fall of the wall happens as we've been discussing on November 9th, nineteen eighty nine, and because it's not planned, because it's right. unintended, it shocks everyone, mm-hmm. and it is almost the equivalent of a starter's gun going off on a race that no one expected to run. 
So people are caught flat-footed. They're not ready to run this race. But all of a sudden, a race has started, and it's the race to define the political order of post-Cold War Europe. What's going to happen now? The Berlin Wall is crumbling. The Iron Curtain is crumbling. What comes next? Right. And the uh, the the West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl moves very quickly in cooperation with the U.S. President George H.W. Bush to push for German unification as quickly as possible. It happens only 329 days after the fall of the wall, which if you had told anyone on November 8th, (laughs) Germany will be completely politically unified Mm -hmm. in less than a year. On November 8th, everyone would said you're completely nuts. But once the wall comes down, Germany unifies very, very quickly. And it does so by turning East Germany into five new states of the Federal Republic. So just as the, I mean, obviously West Germany had a different legal basis than the U.S. Constitution, but it's a roughly similar process to states being added to the United States. Right. And so the Federal Republic gains five new states. And to this day, people often in German use that phrase, die fünf neue Bundesländer, to refer to former East Germany mm-hmm. as the five new states. And so on October 3rd, 1990, Germany legally reunifies. Well, Professor Sarati, thank you so much for being on Policy Cats today. No problem. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. Thank you.